So we're studying Ephesians. For those of you that would like to turn there, um, what do we know about Ephesians so far? Pardon? It's got at least four verses. We've been we've been moving very slowly. Yes. What what is Ephesians about? It, it includes talking about predestination. Is that what it's about, though? Is it fundamentally about predestination? Walking worthy. Walking worthy of our calling. So we have to understand something about our calling and that that should impact us. It should have some kind of impact on our uh, moral uh, outworking in the world. It should affect our moral reality. So... <clears throat> I always point to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 as kind of the, the, uh, the theme statement, thesis statement um, for Paul as he's uh, writing this letter. It says, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I read, therefore I the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So, when we look at at this and and start taking it apart, we understand that Paul, uh, in a very general way, makes uh, incredible claims about who we are in Christ. It's important to understand in Christ, right? And so he... um, Starts out with a doxology and then moves into a prayer. And in many ways, um, a lot of people think that the whole of the first three chapters is really kind of a prayer. Um, Although it's certainly uh, an incredible theological treatise that explains our identity in Christ. So Paul wants us to know who we are in Christ. He wants us then to, to walk according to that knowledge that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And finally, um, that we would be able to take a stand, that we would have a firm foundation in who God is and the revelation that he's given us uh, and who we are in Christ, and that that would ultimately allow us to stand firm in the evil day. And that that's, that's kind of the way the world's headed. We can kind of see that happening so it's particularly relevant for us today. So we want to understand who we are in Christ. So what have we learned about that so far? What have we learned about who we are in Christ? I'll read the, the first 14 verses, and I promised we were actually done with those. So we're going to move on to chapter or verse 15 today. So there are at least 15 verses. I'll prove that. I'll go ahead and read the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. <clears throat> so what have we been, what have we been learning um, as we have looked at these first 14 uh, verses? One thing I can say is that the first two verses are one sentence, that's kind of Paul's introduction. <clears throat> and the next uh, 11 from 3 through, or 12, 11 from, from verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence in Paul's writing, even though we break it up into multiple sentences. <clears throat> so I, I challenge you all, as you're reading through this multiple times, to try and read 3 through 14 in one breath. Okay. So Paul wrote it as, as a single sentence, <clears throat> and, there, and I pointed out last week there's a particular organizational structure based on uh, certain participles. Um, he has blessed us. He has chosen us. <clears throat> and he has made known to us. Right? So those are, that's kind of the organizational structure I would see in those, those first, in that what we'll call a doxology, a declaration of God's glory. So, what are the, what have we been focusing on? Predestination. Pardon? Uh, uh, predestination. Election. So, we, predestination and election. What have we learned about predestination and election? I don't know yet. Don't know yet? <laughs> well, that, um, that uh, both are true, both meaning predestination and choice, and you see that when he says, where he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Uh, he predestined us for sonship in accordance with his pleasure yep. and his will. But in this same Paul sentence, if you go down to uh, 12, in order that we who were the first to put our hope, so that means they, they made a choice so yep. it's in his same sentence he talks about predestination and our first hope, our choice. Yep. So So what is well to me that makes like in Romans, you know, his invisible qualities are clearly seen. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know what you just said there, Paul? And I'm, you know. <laughs> so he I don't think he really works that out, right? He sees both. I see predestination as God's view, perspective, and choice is our perspective. Right. So how do you know if God chose you if you respond to him and choose him? But I can't know that about anyone else. Right. 
don't know God's view. But when I pretend to think that I do, that's when I'm wrong. <laughs> well, yeah. So it's a both and, is what you're saying, in, in many ways of how we would have an exclusive position one way or an exclusive position the other. What we find is that there's biblical support for both, and it may be that Paul's focus isn't trying to get us into one camp or another, but to help us understand what God's doing. So this is very um, theocentric. It's, it's centered on God, His grace, His glory. And it's very Christocentric. It's centered on Christ and what he has done and how that affects our relationship with God. In other words, there are benefits associated with the work that God is doing. Right? And those benefits bless us. We are blessed in him. And so I would, I would say that organizationally, if you look at this, um, what is that what is that every spiritual blessing? Well, it has to do with God's choosing us from before the foundation of the world. So, so is that choosing, is that an act of choosing, or is that more of giving us an invitation? Well, that's why ah, I say it's perspective. Good question. Because we don't really know, right? What we know is it says we were chosen, and, and later on we, we put our faith in, so we chose. Mm-hmm. You know, in other places there's a call to choose and believe. I mean, that's, you know, so I think that's the tension you can't completely blow off. You can't work it out. You can't comprehend it because we don't have the mind of God. We don't have the mind of God, so we're going to wrestle with it. And we probably won't come to 100% resolution. But to kind of address uh, Mitch's question, let's unpack your question a little bit more. Is God's choosing us an invitation... Or is it uh, reach in, yeah. grab, pull out? Um, I chose I chose you like I just chose this particular flavor of chocolate. Right, right now is you know it's Christmas coming up, so we got lots of different kinds of chocolate out there. So, <clears throat> so um, do we? Because one would be more uh, invitational means that there's more aspect of what we would understand as free will involved in us choosing him, right? And the other would be that we have very limited free will. Um, In fact, it may be um, fully scripted how we would uh, respond based on the limited choices we have, right? Um, So we looked at, uh, I'll, I'll just... Not to, not to dwell too much, because I'm trying to capture a, um, a summary of where we've been. And uh, so we're talking about election, I've been going through my notes, and uh, thought I'd bring them up. So let me uh, just a big picture, and then blow it up a little bit so that maybe you can actually read it. Um, so how do I do that? Well, that's, I just tried that. What am I doing wrong? Let's try magnification. Zoom in. Yes, so that's... 
Yes, so we're reading about that in Revelation, in one of the letters to the churches. And what you see in Revelation is kind of a progression in the letters about how, um, what it looks like where the, the church early on had embraced Christ, but then they lost their first love, right? So they started becoming, um, in a sense, disconnected from God. And you see a, a progressive disconnection through a mixing in the world, actually adopting the, the uh, sin and heresy of Jezebel to the final point where um, God can't even distinguish you as his child. And he could spit you out of his mouth, right? And so there's this invitation. Um, so if there is an invitation, does it also preclude that God is so effective in his wooing that you would, by virtue of his overpowering call on you, um, respond? That you would have no choice in response? Or could you still stiff-arm God and say, no, I, cho- I choose something other than you to an invitation? So that's really kind of the nuance we're trying to tease out. Not so much that there's not an invitation, because Scripture tells us clearly that there is an invitation, that God desires all to come to him, and that Jesus died for all, right? And so that's where I would argue with uh, one camp where it says that there's a limited atonement. I would say that it's not limited, it's unlimited, it's available to all, but... um, how is that effective in a person's life is really kind of the question that we're, we're wrestling with. Does that make sense? So that's where I think Alex is saying it's kind of a both and. Are there instances where God is compelling people so strongly that they cannot refuse him? And we know that there are specific examples of that. Who can give me an example of an overwhelming uh, God compelling them. Uh, Pharaoh. Paul. Okay, there's two. Pharaoh and Paul. I would say Paul is an example of where God overwhelmingly wooed him to the point of knocking him off of, of his horse, right? Making it so clear that Paul realized that what he really wanted and the way he was made from before the foundation of the world was to respond to Christ, right? So, so did he have a choice? Pardon? Then what does free will mean? Well, how free is our will? So, so if you ask Paul, who said that he was a prisoner for Christ, right? How free was his will? He would not have traded it for the world. He had total freedom when he was in chains in prison. The evidence of that is when he was there in uh, the Philipp- uh, Philippian prison, right? And they were thrown in the, the darkest dungeon in chains. And at midnight, what were they doing? They were singing. They were praising God. He was free on the inside, even though he was physically bound on the outside. And he could have played his trump card, which is I'm a Roman citizen, and avoided the whole thing. But he didn't because his first um, priority was to win some to Christ. 
So you read Paul when he's talking later to the Corinthians. He says, you know, I become all things to all people. By some means, I might win some. Right? So Paul, I, I mean, I can't imagine that he would have said that he did not have free choice. It's just that his free choice was overwhelmingly um, the result of God wooing him in such a powerful way. So that's irresistible grace. That would be an irresistible grace or an irresistible calling. So when you look at the how people in that uh, consistent Calvinist camp would define irresistible grace, what the grace of God is is that calling, and that and that it, uh, it it's incredibly powerful. And Pharaoh, we would understand, you though, actually resisted that, right? Yeah, he he gave in and then he came. Pardon? He gave in and then he came. Um, he would further his goal. Um, no, he was saying, you know, yeah, 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 go ahead, go ahead, wait, no, don't. Well, that that's just it. He would he would further his 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 whatever it was that he selfishly desired, <clears throat> and if that meant you know giving in for a season. He would do that, but he didn't really intend that, and that's you know we see that by the result of his action, right? So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? But it also says Pharaoh hardened his heart. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart. For it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. If you count the Pharaoh five times, the Pharaoh hardened his heart, and five times the God. That's, that, that's right. And so what you see, it, it's a both hand, right? Pharaoh, even though God desired that Pharaoh would um, give up himself as king and choose the true king, Yahweh, um, Pharaoh chose not to do that. And he hardened his heart to the point where God said, okay, your heart is hardened. So, did Pharaoh have a choice? I, I he's, see he's held responsible for his choice. He's you're held responsible God, for his choice. You're not in yeah, he's held responsible for his choice, and he he made a choice, but God had already chosen as well. Free will really only exists in God. How about Judas? I think that. Pardon? You know, How about Judas? How about Judas? So the story of Judas is he's one of the twelve. In fact, he has a seat of privilege um, within, even though he's not one of the inner three, he's not uh, with um, John and, and James and Peter, which are kind of the inner three. Those are the ones that really stuck close to Jesus, really got to know him, went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with him. <clears throat> Judas, nonetheless, was... Uh, in a place of privilege in the group of 12 uh, that later became apostles. And yet it was uh, predestined, foreknown, that one would betray him. In fact, they even gave the exact amount of money that he would betray him for long before it ever happened. Right? So before Judas was even born, was he um, selected to be that one? Or did he freely choose to do that? God made him that way. In his mind, he freely chose. 
Mm -hmm. And other times, God says, you know, you meant it for good, or evil, but I meant it for good, working out the circumstances to God's right. own goal. Right. So, we're not God. God is the right. essence of free will. We are evil. So, there was, it was untested free will prior to the fall. Then after the fall, how can you describe sinful willfulness as free? We're slaves to sin. How free can we be? I mean, that's more, you know, by prayer. But I mean, we have to embrace our sinfulness. Right. Or acknowledge it, right? You know, see it more clearly. Why would we choose good if we're following? That's the problem. Total depravity means that unless it benefits us, we would not choose the good. So it doesn't mean that total depravity means that all you do is evil. Because we see that that's not true. There are people that are totally fallen, just like us, that do good. Maybe even predominantly in their life. And we would think of them as, as a great person. right? But does that make them... Uh, God sees the heart. Does that mean that their heart chooses the good because that's God? Or do they choose the good because that some way furthers their kingdom? And I'll give an example, and, and you'll probably shoot me for it, but take Mother Teresa. Oh, wait, she's Catholic. That doesn't count. <laughs> I hear it groan. I hear she's Catholic. She was a good woman. She was a good woman. Right? And so now there's a movie out about... Um, how she wrestled and struggled in life and, and uh, got to the place of selfness, selflessness. Um, and I, I believe that she was selfless. She loved because he first loves us. I think that that is true about Mother Teresa. But nonetheless, if you took that away and you look just at the depraved heart, part of being successful uh, as as a nun in, in the cloister community is to be holy. That you actually get brownie points the more holy you are. No, serious. Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the way that system works. With the head nun or with God? <clears throat> so, with man. Man will look at you and judge. That's different than God's looking at your heart and judging. So I believe that when God looked at her heart, what he saw was Christ. That it's not like rose-colored glasses. Uh, when God looks at us, he actually sees us for who we are. But then he sees um, who we are in him. So we talked about being in Christ. It's like Christ's blood on our doorpost. Right, like Christ's blood on our doorpost. So that when he, when he views us, he can say... Yes, there is sin there, and that is incredibly offensive, right? What I declared very good was corrupted by your action, by your heart embracing sin. And that makes me really angry, but that offense that I'm really angry about has been covered, been covered in Christ, who did not offend, and in fact did the opposite of offense. And so that means that we are justified in Christ, not because of our goodness. So when I look at God's judgment, I want him to see Christ. And I believe that that's what he saw in Mother Teresa. 
Now, the world, man judges, sees Mother Teresa and says, she is a saint. The woman only does good. Now, if you ask Mother Teresa that, she'd probably say, no, 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 you don't know me. Right? But nonetheless, there is a judgment of people, of people about goodness and how that can further your position in the world. So if, as, as a person, if my goal is to get as much power and um, a, as big a kingdom as I possibly can grasp, right? I can do it through one of two ways. I can become really good or I can become really bad. Usually you don't find really powerful people in the middle. Seriously. Just a little... Side story on Mother Teresa, I probably didn't have a testimony of her. In my travels, I ended up in Joplin, Missouri, and it was several years ago, and the, the business got done, and well, we ended up going and having a, uh, a meal with the son of a pastor down in Lake Oswego, who was living in Joplin. And, uh, after that, nice guy, we brought him to the church, and were, the church was a very large building, but they got it for almost nothing. And one of the things he shared that uh, I was amazed about, he served with Mother Teresa two years, taking care of the, the people that she took care of. And I thought, wow, that's, and he really spoke very, very highly of her. And uh, then the plane of you guys all remember that? Yeah. The church was one block away from the, the zone, and that became a center for all the people that were without homes and could fit in there. And he was, what, serving in the same way that Mother Teresa uh, was serving. So, without knowing her heart, her example was powerful. Yes. <clears throat> very, very much so. And that's why we are called to be holy. Right? So that should be the purpose of calling. The purpose of our election, God's choosing, is so that we will be holy as He is holy. Right? That we are created for good works. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Right? So. When I was talking about the judgment that occurs, a human judgment and a divine judgment, what we're looking at here is the divine view of things. This is theocentric. This is who we are in Christ. But what we need to contrast that with is anthropocentric, man-centric, right? or human-centric, and the way that the world works, and the way that the world values things. Right? And the world can value altruism. It can value goodness because it sees that as a way, as a means to an end. Right? Not just as the right thing to do, as being righteous. It sees it as a means to an end. And that's why I say that usually you won't find a really powerful person um, in the middle ground. You'll find them strong on the altruistic side or strong on the despotism side, right? And that um, that's how that they're going to be effective in the world. And that those in the middle are just confused. Sometimes they think good is going to get them further. Sometimes they think 
uh, evil is going to get them further, and that's kind of the normal playing ground where you see people that don't know God and don't know Christ play out their lives, right? But what we see is that God, looking at it from a, a theocentric position, God chose us from before the foundation of the world. Is that choice uh, an invitation or is it an irresistible wooing? Choice doesn't sound like anything other than a, a final decision. He chose us. So, um, so I make a lot of choices in my life, right? The most significant choices I make are all relational. Um, I know that from experience. Um, so it doesn't matter whether I choose, you know. Uh, Fund A or Fund B or Stock A or Stock B. Those are those are interesting choices, and we spend a lot of time dwelling on that. But really, the primary choices I make are where I'm going to invest my heart in relation, right? Um, when I make that choice, and it's totally my choice, I'm all in. My heart is in that. That's what God's election is. It's his heart all in. I'm choosing you. And that's what he's saying. He chose us. According to his pleasure and good will. So we have to look at what the impact of God's choosing us is. If I say that it's God all in, then what that choice means is he is putting value on us that is not there by any other means. So does he choose all then? He places value on all, I would argue. And that God desires, the desire of his heart is that none would perish. Why does he desire that none would perish? Because we are created in his image. Because we are created in his image and in that sense there we are too valuable to lose. Right? So he desires our salvation. So, in that sense, it's more than an invitation. It's a statement about who God is. And how that's going to be expressed um, may be the invitational part that we wrestle with in, in, uh, in free choice. So, what is the expression of choice? Pardon? So, from that perspective, his choice is not necessarily um, correct, and so I, yeah, and so um, what I'm gonna what I'm gonna kind of move to from choice because I'm looking at choice, and what I see is the choice is related to God's grace. When I look at Ephesians, and I'm reading down the page here, <clears throat> I see that He chose us for a purpose that we would be holy and blameless before Him, and that. Then he speaks of how that occurs in relationship. He predestined us to adoption as sons, that we are foreigners to him, and yet he opens us and invite and makes a way for us to be part of his family. Right? He adopts us through Jesus Christ to himself. So that's talking about communion, relationship, tight relationship. And he does this according to the kind of intention of his will. So it's a choice on God's part, that choosing. So we see that choice plays out through him 
bringing us into relationship with him and that this is to the praise of his uh, of the glory of his grace it is by grace that this choice is is worked out god's choosing us is expressed in his grace now is grace resistible that's the fourth point in calvinism right irresistible grace irresistible calling so I'm, I'm working through the argument on one side and the argument on the other side because, like I said, I'm not an Easternism, so i got to understand all these different nuances and points, right? What I see is that he's blessed us, that he chose us, and that that has to do with relationship and his grace, and that that relationship and his grace is expressed. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The reason that we have um, this opportunity to be in his family is because of the expression of his grace through redemption, the blood of Jesus Christ. That I was talking about when, when, from the divine perspective, looking at Mother Teresa, what does God see? Does he see her good works or does he see Christ? Because her good works, if you took the sum of them, are not good enough. They're not good enough. Pardon? He has to see Christ. Correct. And that's what Daryl was alluding to, is that I'm actually, I actually see God by someone else doing good in God's name. Because the goodness of God then becomes apparent to me. And what does that do? That woos me. To, to, to who? Mother Teresa? No, to God. But what God sees is he sees Christ and Mother Teresa in Christ. And her salvation is through what he did. So when we look at the word atonement, and I'll get to you here in a second, Bob. Um, when we look at the word atonement, there are three aspects to it that we want to consider. And all three aspects you'll find in context in different uh, areas of Scripture when talking about atonement. Atonement does three things. It covers over. So a lot of times we look at the... the uh, uh, when you look at the mercy seat, it's a covering. Right? And the idea of atonement is, is that it's like putting a cover over the offense of sin. So sin is offensive to God. It is offensive, and so it makes it non-offensive. doesn't make it not sin. It makes it non-offensive. The second thing that it does is it um, appeases the righteous anger of God about that sin. So sin corrupted everything that God said was very good. And man, that ticked him off to the point of wanting to destroy it all and do it again. But he loved so much that he made a way that it would not be offensive. He made a way that his anger would be appeased. We call that propitiation. And the third aspect is actual um, redemption or paying a ransom, as it's sometimes called. And, and what we see in the sacrificial system is the ransom is the sacrifice. And that that sacrifice, that actual shedding of blood, not only covers the sin, removes 
the the righteous anger, but it also restores. Because we read in Leviticus, life for life, right? We covered this. You missed it, Alex. We went through it this last week. Sorry. I'll send you a link that I saw for a summary of Leviticus. Okay. Um, and and so what we understand is a life was given for our life. So and when God views that, he's viewing those three things. That's what it means. What, why is it telling them to do these three things? Why aren't there three different words? You know. um, it's the same word with three different interpretations based on context. And so, what we see is when God looks at us in Christ, He's not looking at Mother Teresa's sin. He does not not see her sin, but it's no longer offensive. He's no longer having righteous anger towards it. And not only that, but He's made a way for life out of death. He's made a way of redemption. That's, that's incredibly powerful. And that's what Ephesians is telling us. He predestined us to adoption of sins through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory, of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the, in the beloved. We have, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Then there's one more piece. He didn't just leave us in that place of redemption. Before I jump to that, uh, I, I cut you off, Bob, because I saw your hand go up. I think that you've answered a lot of my questions. It's just that I've been outside the body and realized that he was driving me back into the body. And um, it's, it's a test. He had to test So he, he does. He, he, he wants to know if we really choose him, right? And, that, um, and that's actually really important. And when we respond to that um, wooing of God, that calling of God, he reinforces that. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh hardened his heart and God reinforced it. Who um, gave Paul a heart after Christ? I would say Paul chose Christ. He was compelled to, but nonetheless, he chose Christ and God reinforced it. It's like a turbo on your decision-making. Right. And that's actually what it says here. After we move through um, our redemption, we get to um, the sealing of that. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. God promised that he would be with us. He promised we would be in Christ, that we would be safe, as Noah was safe in the ark. And Peter actually uses that analogy of the ark to help us understand what our salvation is about. We are in Christ, we have that, and we also have Christ in us. And that that then does something to us. It affects us in our faith. Our, our hope is faith in action. Right? What a hope is, is when you have faith against what the world would tell you. Because the world tells you there is no God. The world tells you that there is no salvation. When you're dead, you're dead. I was just reading about um, Jack London. He wrote The Call of the Wild. And Jack London was an atheist. And I was reading the story of his life. 
Um, I'll tell you how I got onto this thing, but I, my brain goes a lot of different directions. So I ended up reading about Jack London and uh, his writing, and that he was one of the first um, uh, fiction writers that actually uh, made a significant income in his lifetime from his writings, and yet he was totally an atheist. When I'm dead, I'm dead. Right? That's what the world tells you. When he went out and looked at the world, that's what the world told him. When you're dead, you're dead. So you better be alive when you're alive. Right? Because you got no, you got no other. Well, what does the Bible tell us? What does the revelation tell us? It's like, no, no, no. There's a greater reality than what you see. And that's that's what we see. We have <clears throat> we have a greater reality. We know that we have been saved, and it says he made known to us the mystery of his will. So there's a revelation that's occurring. God reveals to us not only who he is but what he's doing. And that gives us hope. According to his kind intention, he purposed in him, that is Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, complicated sentence here, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. What that means is that God, in his divine wisdom, understood Um, And his triune nature understood that this incredibly valuable relationship that he has with humanity, and I would say that it's valuable to God and it's certainly valuable to us, that choosing puts value on us, it puts God's value on us. That the way that that was going to occur was in Christ, and that means everything in this world, in creation, and everything in the heavens is all summed up in Christ. It's all about him. So that's why I say this this section of Ephesians is very theocentric, God-centric, and it's very Christocentric. It's all about Christ and all about the revelation of him and what he did and how we are in him. Incredibly powerful. If you know this, you can go on and face great trial. Nothing can destroy you. And Paul knew that because he went through great trial. And he was not destroyed, even up to the point of his death. So that's what we read. He says, We also, in him, we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So that's speaking to God's sovereignty. So now this gets back to your question of how much free will do we have, right? Can I do something that surprises God? Can I surprise God? God's not surprised. He might be discouraged. He might be unhappy. He might be happy. Right? But he's not surprised. Because all things are known to him. And all things work according to his purpose. So that's where we see Joseph who was thrown in a pit by his brothers and was abandoned. uh, They were going to kill him, and then they said, well, let's make some money off of this, and they sold him to some some slave traders that were headed to Egypt. And he ends up in Egypt, and he has what we read about is a life of of suffering and trial. Was it deserved by him? Yes and no. Right? Do we deserve the trials that we have? 
I can think of the specific trials I have, and I can I can understand how I got there. Yeah. Um, does that mean that you know by man's measure, I would say I don't deserve it? You know, what did I do? I didn't kill anybody. You know, why should I be in prison? That was Joseph. Um, and yet, God intended that for good. He was not only working to redeem. In this case, all of uh, the sons of Jacob, Israel, through whom we would understand one of those, Judah, would actually be the tribe that Christ would be born from. If we look at the lineage, Christ would not have come if Joseph would not have done what he did. God had in view the redemption of all humanity. He also had in view... The redemption of Joseph. Right? Joseph could have chosen some other some other route. He could have chosen uh, a different route with Potiphar's uh, wife. He could have chosen a different route when he was in prison. He could have chosen a different route a lot of different ways. But what Joseph did is he saw the bigger picture. And that's what we're getting here, the bigger picture that it's all about Christ, and that as a result of what God is doing in Christ, we have an inheritance. That means I have a future. That's incredibly powerful. That gives me hope. So what I see in, um, in the first sentence, second sentence of Paul, is I see love, faith, hope, grace, incredibly powerful concepts that are foundational to who we are as Christians. Understanding God's love. Responding in faith. Having hope as a result of the revelation that he gives us. And that that is the richness of his grace. His glorious, rich grace. Right? So that's what this passage is about. So I'm just going to go through the the sum-up stuff, and then I'm going to take you to my summary, which is much shorter. So when we look at, um, is this viewable? This is the notes that I gave out, and I have other copies if people would like them. Um, This is the summary of what, everything I've been teaching on election, right? And I'll I'll read it. Uh, Maybe I can make it one. we'll, We'll try it this way. God draws all people. That word all is all. God draws all people. With some, the drawing is effectual. That would be Saul before he became Paul. While with others, it is enabling so that they can make their own choice. An example of that is Lydia. So we see examples of both. Effectual uh, drawing and um, enabling type drawing. And so when I was talking about the different theological systems... I was talking about grace. What does that grace look like? Is it prevenient grace? Is it effectual grace only? So, but what I see in Scripture is God draws all people. God works in very special ways with some. For example, that is Cornelius. So if you know the story of Cornelius, he was a Gentile. And he had a dream. God gave him a dream. That there would be one that would come and share with him um, the way of eternal life. And that was Peter. And Peter said, I'm not going to go and hang out with my Gentiles. Right? So we know that God works in very special ways. 
came to Cornelius as an example, but works in rather ordinary ways with others. So when Paul was on trial um, in Caesarea, which those of you that are going to Israel with us will actually get to see Caesarea by the sea, um, Paul was on trial there, and he went before Agrippa, and he made his argument. He said, this is, this is what I know that God has revealed to me. He gave factual evidence, and he did it in a very compelling way, and Agrippa wrestled with it. He said, would you convert me to Christianity? In other words, it was piercing his heart, but it wasn't um, the same way that, um, that Cornelius experienced that calling of God. God works graciously with all people, but in different ways with different people, in different ways with the same person at different times. How many of you have experienced that? In your walk, um, there may have been a time of testing. There may have been a time of, of trial. There may have been a time where, you know, I know for me, it's like, God, I want to have nothing to do with you. Only later to say, man, I, I can't apologize enough. I can't tell you how sad I am about the depravity that is within me. I weep over my sin. Right? Um, so that, that happens. This is not contrary because he does not work in different ways with the same person at the same time. We're, we're continually growing and when we look at that salvific work that God is doing, I knew I'd get that in there, salvific, uh, that sanctification precedes glorification. That we are on a path of, of um, being holy and blameless before him in love. That's the whole purpose of his choosing us. So the summary is, there's John 3.16, 1 Timothy 2, 3-6, 2 Peter 3.9, where it is clear that God wants all saved. There are also passages like Acts 9, 5-15, especially verse 15, supported by Galatians 1.15, along with Acts 13.48, which are very Calvinistic. In other words, effectual grace, um, apart from God, there would be no salvation. Then there is almost uh, totally overlooked passages in Romans 2, 4 through 11, where God's kindness leads all to repentance, with the following verses making it clear that some reject his leading and getting wrath, but others doing good, which equals responding to his leading and getting eternal life. So we read that in Romans. Those are those without the law that God is working in their conscience. Right? It's true that there must be a drawing for uh, people to come. We know that from John. In other words, we would never even get there if God didn't draw us. But it's not true uh, either that all drawn come or that the drawn necessarily means dragged it also means to woo. So that's the both end. Right? That coupled with passages like John 12, 32 makes it clear that all are drawn akin to Romans 2. That's why there is a personal responsibility that comes as a result of God's choosing us. That's really important. You cannot escape responsibility for who you are and your choices because... God is working to draw you to himself. So the bottom line is that all humans are drawn because God truly wants them to come to him. No one can say, God wasn't interested in me. He didn't help me. 
Many of those drawn ones resist, preferring to worship and serve other gods and end up in hell. Others receiving the same drawing respond and come to salvation. There are some who are specially uh, selected in Calvinistic ways. You know, we can give examples of that from Scripture. We can give examples of that from, uh, from people's lives. So Ephesians 3.13 speaks of God's predetermined choice to grant super blessings to all in Christ folk. It's God's blessings to us. But never specifies how one gets into Christ. In other words, it's general, it's not specific on a particular occasion to a particular person. It's to a population at large. So we need to wrestle with that. We need to work out our salvation, as some would say. Everyone adds some words in a key place. Most Calvinists make it say, for he chose us to be in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Most Wesleyan Arminians make it say, for he chose us who choose to be in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. No one supports their additional words, especially Calvinists, who just assume their interpretation. I think it is best understood as for he chose us who are in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. So that's, that may be unsatisfactory to some, but people always want to know, well, what do I think? I think that God is effective and powerful and cannot his purpose will not be thwarted. I also believe that I have fully free choice and that that's essential to love. Without free choice, without choosing, love cannot be expressed. So isn't that salvation? Can we at least read verse 15? Yeah. We're getting getting there. Which translation? Your wife had said, time's up now. Oh, yeah, there's all that whole thing. So, um, okay, so this is my summary of the doxology because what comes next is the prayer, which I'm going to read, and that's where I'm going to close. So I will get to verse 15. So summary is, we are blessed and chosen by God to live blamelessly before him. That's the thesis of Paul. We're blessed and chosen. And that election expresses two ideas, the value given to human beings by God and the responsibility that we owe to God as a result of his choosing. The focus of the biblical text is on the cause of election, God, and its purpose that Christians live holy and blameless before God. That's, that's what this is about. Chosen by God for adoption and forgiveness through grace. That's the explanation of the blessing. That election is God's grace in action, demonstrating his favor to bring us into relationship with him through salvation in Christ. That is God giving us himself. That's what grace is. God giving us himself. And grace emphasizes that God values us and seeks us despite our failure and sin. That's what this is telling to me. And that God's plan for eternity is revealed and his spirit is given as a guarantee. So that's where I'm going to sum up and I'm going to be finished with 3 through 14. Um, I'll be referencing it several times because I would say that this is the whole of the organization that Paul wants us to really, really, really understand. This is his his uh, glory to God, his doxology, right? And that what we're going to see is more explanation, more teasing out 
what that means to be in Christ. Then he says, in a a great thanksgiving prayer, he says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. We would have revelation. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, That's that inward working of God. So that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So again, a lot to unpack. That's Paul's prayer that, as he says here, for this reason, it's referring back to what we've just struggled through in several weeks. Yes? Just want to make sure I'm capturing your summary of the first 14 verses. And Paul's concern is who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, and not how we got there. Correct. Correct? Correct. He's going to talk more about how we got there. It's not that he is going to neglect that. Yeah. Um, He's going to unpack that further. But in the general statement, in the doxology, um, the concern that, that people would bring in in different theological positions is really not supported there. So, does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. It's just incredible uh, passage of Scripture here. Lord, we thank you so much for that which you're doing in our midst, that you um, have made a way to preserve uh, your revelation for us um, through Paul, through the ages um, to us, Lord, that we can um, hear the incredible work that that you're doing on our behalf, that you desire to bless us, that you've chosen us, that you've redeemed us, um, Lord, and we would ask that you would penetrate our heart with that, that it would actually change how we live that we can respond in faith with hope um, and, and do good works um, to be holy um, and without fault in your presence, Lord. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for those incredible failures that we have and thank you so much that you choose us even knowing that that will happen. Lord, we uh, lift to you this day. We lift to you the business meeting that will happen later. We lift to you the, the, your word that will go out from Bob from the pulpit. Lord, we ask that your spirit... Um, effectually work in the hearts of people as they hear. Uh, Lord, we ask for your, your protection and your provision. Uh, we find ourselves in uh, an incredibly uh, challenging and violent world. And Lord, we just ask that you would keep us safe in you. And we thank you so much for your incredible service to us, that you gave your life on the cross. We thank you for all of this, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.